Paul since chapter 11. And also, I'm going to be calling Paul, Paul, even while the Bible still refers to him as Saul in this first half of the chapter. So more on that in a minute. But uh, So let's read Acts chapter 12, verse 25 to Acts 13, verse 12. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went out to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Paul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elemas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil! You enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Would you join me in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, Lord. We thank you for life. We thank you for breath, God. We thank you for every opportunity we get to study your word as God's people. God, I pray that uh, we would be edified by your word, Lord, that we would be taught rightly, and God, that you would use me. Father, you're good. You're holy, you're just, and you're mighty. Thank you so much for the blood of Jesus that we would seek to grow your church, that we would seek to bring glory and honor to the name of Jesus Christ. And in your holy name we pray all these things. Amen. So this morning, the big idea is this. God uses ordinary means for the inevitable, extraordinary growth of his church. And where we begin this morning is where we begin at the end, or where we ended in Acts chapter 11. We see Paul and, or Saul and Barnabas reintroduced into the narrative of Acts from their service at the church in Jerusalem. And again, Saul is just Paul's Jewish name. Paul is his Roman name. There's not a big theological significance. I will say Paul probably for the rest of this message, even while he's called Saul, so please forgive me. <laughs> but now that Saul and Barnabas are back, don't you think that they're due some rest and relaxation? No. They're worshiping with the family of God. They are worshiping and fasting with the family of God. They're back into the swing of church life. Worshiping and fasting for the sake of the risen Christ, they went to Jerusalem to faithfully serve the church there, and now they're back at the church at Antioch to serve here. And so in verses 1 to the first half of 2, we see these men performing the single most important act of church life. And which brings me 
to my first point is this, that the extraordinary growth of the church begins with ordinary worship. And so ordinary worship, as you might imagine, kind of looks something like this. It looks like somebody preaching the word faithfully week in and week out, and the people of God coming together, singing, praising the name of the Lord God, proclaiming Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And so, this is what these men were doing whenever the Holy Spirit spoke to them. They were worshiping. They were fasting. They weren't doing anything extraordinary. They were just fasting and worshiping. And a note on fasting, everybody gets weird when you talk about fasting. The Bible just assumes, if you're a Christian, that you'll be fasting. We can talk about how long, how frequent, how often, whatever, but the point is that they were doing it. And so the idea here is that the Christian art of fasting has been lost, trampled on, uh, taken by mystics, but it's just something simply that we're called to do, that the Word assumes that we're doing, and so we need to be doing. This isn't a pragmatic, two easy steps to church growth, but it is what God has called us to do in ordinary worship. In every Lord's Day meeting around the good news that Jesus Christ has come and died to save his people, singing, singing and listening to the word rightly taught, this is worship. Worship is the basis of this passage because this is where the meat and potatoes are. It's where Christians are fortified with the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. If we aren't worshiping rightly, then we won't be growing rightly. If our focus isn't upon the gospel of Jesus Christ, then our working won't reflect that. And I think that's most evident in the loss of gospel-centered churches around America. And ironically, when you see a gospel, the loss of gospel-centered churches, they're typically, in most stereotypically, I should say, in bigger churches. And ironically, Antioch was one of the three or four biggest churches in the New Testament time, yet here we see God using this church greatly. We see these great men. They were great enough to be known by name, to be mentioned in the book of Acts specifically. You have Paul, Simeon, Lucius, Manan. These were great men doing ordinary worship. God uses ordinary means for the inevitable, extraordinary growth of His church. Worship and fasting. It's the foundation of the growth of the church by regular men, no matter how great they might seem. Which leads me to my second point is this, is that we read that those whom the Spirit calls, they must be sent for the spread of the gospel and the growth of the church. And so in the second half of verse 2, we see the Holy Spirit speak, and then in verse 3, we see the church at Antioch send Saul and Barnabas. And so there's a general, generally applicable principle here, but I want to focus on the more specific thing right here is that while everyone's here to share the gospel, everyone in this room is called to evangelize, there are some people that the Holy Spirit has called to gospel work in another place. Whether that be missionary work, pastoring another church, whatever that be, some people are called to go and be sent to a completely another place. And so imagine, if you will, you have the Apostle Paul and you have Barnabas at your church. Obviously, these are two men of great repute. These are two men that are digging into your church. They're preaching. They're teaching the Word faithfully. They're doing an awesome job. Your people are getting fed. And then the Holy Spirit says, I need them to go somewhere else. I know my first thought would probably be, we have this intern that's been here for four years. Can't we just send him instead? 
And while I poke fun at myself, um, the reality is we shouldn't be afraid to send our best because they had been called by the Holy Spirit. And the same should go for us. And I, I will not pretend for a moment that I'm nearly as important as Paul or Barnabas were. But I've been around for a while. I helped a lot. I led the youth group for three years. And so I felt kind of responsible for the direction of the youth group. And so my trepidation was about a year and a half out before I left for seminary. Adam and I were thinking about youth. We were talking about youth. We were eating lunch as we normally do, talking about what's going on in the church. And we were thinking, what are we going to do with youth? Just like, no clue. And then one day this guy named Dan Ackert comes in and volunteers and asks, hey, how can I help come lead youth? (laughs) And if there was such a thing as God sending a flashing neon sign, that was it. It was like, hey, this is the guy. (laughs) This is what happens when we faithfully send people who are called because the Lord will take care of his church. Because when the Holy Spirit calls, we send people. And so how do we determine if we're called by the Holy Spirit to go? I'm going to go out on a limb and say that most of us aren't going to hear, set apart for me, Lane and -and so-and-so for the work of the gospel. If you're called to be sent, you will know it by the reading of the Word of God. God will not leave you in the dark as to whether or not you should go somewhere for the gospel. Many of us are simply just called to be faithful church members here and share the gospel within our own communities. More on that later. Because the same Spirit that sent Paul and Barnabas is alive and directing you and I insofar as we are truly Christians. The Holy Spirit will call people and we must send people. And it's not a mindless sending. When people are sent, they're confirmed and uh, they're confirmed and prayed over by the sending body. They're fasted, prayed over in verse 3. It says that after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Church members are sent off with intention and clarity, knowing that if the Holy Spirit is with them, our people will do nothing but succeed that we send out. And this isn't a, hey, just go and there's just going to be success everywhere you go. You're just going to walk and and flowers are going to grow where you walk. No, it's, it's not that easy. When you go, you might not even see the fruits of your labor. You might die before the gospel explodes where you go. But when the Spirit calls, we send men and women. God uses ordinary means, you and I, for the inevitable extraordinary growth of His church. And evangelism is that ordinary mean. You and I can be confident that evangelism is working, it is going to succeed because of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit that dwells within you and I. Romans 1.16 says that the power, of, or the power of God, or the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The same Spirit that empowers us to share the gospel is the one that was in Paul and Barnabas. Which brings me to my last point. The Holy Spirit will do His sovereign work in opening the eyes of the blind, in saving souls, letting nothing stop His work. So if you haven't noticed, I've mentioned the Holy Spirit a handful of times. And my pastor in Kansas City, uh, we were discussing this, and we were talking about how frequently this passage mentions the Holy Spirit explicitly, 
And it was as explicit as Jesus was in John chapter 16. So I think it would be fruitful for us to look at John chapter 16, verses 7 through 15. So if you don't have your Bibles, don't worry. It'll be on the screen. But John chapter 16, verse 7 says this. Nevertheless, this is Jesus speaking, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is to be judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And so when we compare this to Acts 13, there's some, some very striking comparisons. Because when Paul addresses Simon, or Bar-Jesus, Alemus the magician, he calls him, you son of the devil. When we go back and we look at what the Spirit's work is, the third thing that Christ said, He said that concerning judgment, talking about convicting concerning uh, judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged, you son of the devil. The second thing that Paul says, he says, you enemy of all righteousness, which is the second thing that Jesus says. Jesus said that concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. So this Jew was obviously in condemnation because he did not know righteousness. He was fighting righteousness. And then the last thing that Paul says, he says, full of all deceit and villainy. He's acting evilly. And when we look in the first thing Jesus says, he says concerning sin. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Jesus said the Spirit would convict the world concerning these three things. And Paul, filled with the Spirit, he condemns this man because of these three things. And the point that I want to drive home here is that Paul, being filled with the Spirit, this man is subsequently judged with blindness. Not only was this man not filled with the Spirit, he was an example of the apostate state of the Jews in this day. This Jew that was not convicted of his sin who did not know true righteousness, who did not know Christ. He was not filled with the Spirit. He was the antithesis of what a Spirit-filled person was supposed to be. Christians, the point of this judgment was for us to not to try to blind unrepentant sinners, but it's that people would believe. The proconsul believed. When he saw what had happened, he was like, this is a gospel message I think I can get with. <laughs> because the man was blinded in front of him. But why did the proconsul believe? It wasn't just because of some miracle worked by the Spirit, which was incredible in and of itself. This is, this is what the Word says. It says that the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. You see, it's the gospel that's the power of salvation to everyone who believes. It's the gospel 
that saves souls. It's the Spirit that works in and through His people and He saves the souls of the people that hear the Gospel. We plainly see that God, even though this was an extraordinary use that the, or an extraordinary thing that the Spirit did in blinding a man, God uses the ordinary means of evangelism for the inevitable, extraordinary growth of His church. And so as I've, as I've been praying and meditating on this passage, there are three final applications that come to mind as we seek to make disciples of all nations. And my first application point is this, that God uses ordinary, Spirit-filled people for the growth of His church. More plainly put, if you are a Christian, then God has called you to evangelism because there's no such thing as a spiritless Christian. The Holy Spirit that called, equipped, and sent Paul is the same Holy Spirit that lives inside you and I today if we, call, if we are truly Christians. This means that we go and we evangelize with confidence because the power of the Spirit that works within us is the same Spirit that was powerfully working through Paul. We go and evangelize with confidence because we can't fail. We tell unsaved people that sin deserves the wrath of God and that Jesus Christ paid the penalty so that we can stand justified before God. Jesus Christ is the ultimate, the, paid the ultimate price that people would be saved. So who, I want to see a raise of hands, who here has the ability to, to say these things, to tell people that Jesus is alive, Jesus is Lord, Jesus saves from sin? Can you, can you say it? Can you, can, you, can you tell somebody though? If you're a Christian? Yeah, you can tell somebody, right? Yeah. But, who has the power to regenerate, to open a sinner's blinded eyes to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Only Jesus, right? I'm glad nobody's hands went up when I said that. God uses us as individuals in our communities, in our workplaces, our homes, our families to tell unsaved people about the good news of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit will do the work to save His people. God will let nothing get in the way of the conversion of his people. Evangelism is a particularly challenging thing, I think, in the 21st century. And I know I, I feel this struggle. I feel this pull myself. And at Midwestern, the school that I'm at, we have an entire class devoted to spiritual disciplines and evangelism. And family, we can't expect the world to come to us. We have to go to the world. And I... I've mentioned some generally applicable things, but, I, but one thing in particular that's, that stood out to me is whenever I went to Kansas City, my pastor, he goes door knocking every, every Tuesday that, he's, uh, that he can at least. And so I have so much anxiety when I go and do this. I have enough anxiety as it is just in general, but going and knocking on strangers' doors for like an hour, that, man, that, I tell you, that gets me. And... <laughs> It's crazy because the people that I've gotten to meet, the people that I've gotten to share the gospel with, there's so much power. But it's me, my pastor, and a fellow seminary student. We go through the neighborhood, door to door, we knock, and we tell them that we're with Tower View Baptist Church up the road. We ask, how can we pray for you? And then if they, if they tell us we don't want prayer, we hand them a, go a bag with a gospel track and church information. And then if they do say yes, we pray for them, and then we hand them the same bag. Door knocking is not the end-all, be-all, but it's one of the easiest, simplest ways we can reach our neighbors here in the States. I know here at River Valley, we don't 
really do this, but what if we started to? I made the youth group do it twice, actually, and they were all super uncomfortable, and I loved it. It was fantastic. Getting to see the trepidation and the fear in their eyes as they walk up to a random stranger's door and to tell them that, ask them, how could we pray for you? It was, it was such a humbling experience for me because of how bold these students were whenever I was the one saying, hey, you have to go do this. Man, I'm such a hypocrite. We, we're about to have a brand new church building that we're going to do great things for the community. We're going to be doing great things for the people in that area, but we need to be sending people out. We need to be evangelizing. We need to be witnessing. We need to be reaching our neighbors here where we are. Which leads me to my second point of application that a sending church is an equipping church. We just read about Paul's first missionary journey. Up until this point of his ministry, he was in service at churches. He was at Antioch, and then they sent him to help at Jerusalem, then they sent him back to Antioch, and what was he doing the whole time? He was serving the church. He was, he was being equipped, I would even go so far as to say. I don't expect nor do I want new believers to be street preaching. <laughs> I do expect a believer of any amount of years to be telling coworkers, friends, neighbors, family members about what a Savior Jesus is. We have a lot of resources at this church. Most notably, the most recent thing is Adam put the books back there on the shelves. Those are great resources. Adam's a well-read individual. If he put those books back there, there's a really good reason why he put them back there. You should probably go read those books. I highly recommend it. Another way we equip people at this church, discipleship. We have so many people that are leading other people, discipling other people, growing in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that, why? We can be better disciples who make other disciples. From how I have grown in this church, I know that our leaders do an excellent job at equipping those called. I could get really sentimental and gushy here. I'm, I'm thinking about how to do this so I don't like tear up. Adam Blaylock, all throughout my young adult, and teenage and middle school years, helped in youth group, showed me what it means to be a real man. Adam Carius there in the back, mentored me very well for four plus years, not mentioning all the time he spent with me in the youth group. And just to name a few of the many that have poured into my life at this church, our leaders equip well, use the resources that they give, know them, ask them to disciple you because they will let you know, they will help you know this so much better than you do now. Because this is all we need for evangelism. This is how God has called us to live right faith and practice. And that's what happens when you put a loose bookmark in there. All right. All right, moment over. I was, that was, that was hard for me. <laughs> I'm bad with gushy things. Family. My final application is, is this, is we can be confident when we're sent out because God is faithful to accomplish the growth. Isaiah 55:11 says, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. If God calls us to go and do something, don't you think He'll be faithful to fulfill whatever work He has us to do? Be confident. Jesus Christ is Lord. 
He purchased salvation with his own blood. If Christ went to those lengths to pay the price for your sin, don't you think that God will be faithful when you speak a few words about the goodness and the Lordship of Jesus Christ? This isn't the surefire way to grow your church in three easy steps. And The size of today's church, it goes against that conventional wisdom. If you consider it, you had a handful of confused disciples after the death of their Lord who went out into the nations telling them that this guy Jesus, he raised from the dead, he's alive right now, he's reigning and ruling, and if you would but believe in him and turn from your sins, you can be saved and have eternal life. Now to a world that's perishing, that's foolishness. But to those of us who have the words of eternal life, that's all we have. Family, the size of the church today, that's extraordinary. And when you go and share the gospel, the fruit is inevitable. The proconsul in this passage wasn't converted because of how influential Paul was. It was because of the message. It was because of the power of God in the gospel that he had. And so there's one final story that I have to share because it is so crazy and is so good. So David Platt, a famous author, theologian, pastor, former missionary, he was at a seminary. He was teaching at a seminary, talking to graduate students in Indonesia. And to graduate from this, uh, from this seminary, you have to have at least planted a church with at least 30 baptized members. And so this seminary, these are some hardened men. They've seen hard times. They really know what it means to go out and evangelize in a hard place. And there was this one guy... He used to be a fighter in his life. He was a, he was a pretty hard guy. And so he's talking about this experience. He's out in a village and he was evangelizing. <laughs> this witch doctor, he came in and he started riling him up and he said, come on, let's go fight. And this Christian, this graduate, the seminarian, he, he thought, you know, I could, I could really just, I could kill this guy. And he goes, but I'm a Christian. I, I, God fights my battles. So he walks out and he says to this witch doctor, he says, I don't fight my battles. God does. And a few moments later, this witch doctor tried to start talking again and he started gargling and the dude fell over dead right in front of him. And people started crowding around him and the guy was like, what do I do? And he goes, I guess I preach the gospel. And that day, Many people were saved. Family, this is the power of the Spirit that lives within us. This is how confident we can be in evangelism. God will be faithful to produce the fruit. God uses ordinary means for the inevitable, extraordinary growth of His church. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank You for today, Lord. We thank You for Your Son, Jesus Christ, for dying.